All right, I gotta do a couple things here, but what I wanna start this gathering off by talking about this morning is warranties. I want us to think about warranties. What warranties come to mind? And go ahead, you can just shout it out. Automobile, Automobile warranties? Six months fixed APR, 0% zero financing, <laughs> zero down. Zero down, six months free. Um, Brian, when you think about automobile, well, I guess two Brian's are speaking now at the moment. Mr. Trevelyan, when you think about automobile warranties, do you think about the phone calls of, does anybody get those? Uh, no. I don't have a car in warranty. I just know that some of them have long warranties, like a hundred. They'll have like a 10 year warranty. No, they'll call you like they have a 20 year old car and they'll call you. Yeah, you can. It's like some kind of weird spam and you're always trying to block them in your phone. But then you have the warranty and then you can't get them. <laughs> it's true. What else comes to mind when we think about warranties? Oh, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. What else? Come on, there's a there's a couple of big ones you guys are missing. Homeowners warranty. All right. Yes, which is under the name of what? Apple. Where's my Apple Care people at? Deetra. Johnny's Apple Care. Um, how about, I was thinking also of the Costco Purchase Protection Plan, right? How many people are, do that? Um, so here's where we really need to divide the church, and we really need to see who's who in this church. Where are my, I want my purchase guaranteed until Jesus comes back warranty kind of people? Where are you at? Where are you at? Dustin, you want it? You want to, I mean, as long the extended, you're extending, you're getting the warranty on the warranty the whole way. Anyone else? No? Where are my, um, man, I thought there would have been more folks. That, where are my, like, honestly, I'm too cheap to buy a warranty, kind of. <laughs> right? And then what about, what about the, like, people who are just like, man, warranties are just a complete scam. Like, they're just, they're just a scam. Um, I want to talk about warranties and, and, and more the, this kind of idea of, of, of this sense of protection that warranties give us, right? But I, I want to come back to that in a little bit um, because we're doing this series and, and um, it's Paul speaking about Jesus using Old Testament references, right? So we're going to talk about this kind of, these three ways to, to come together. Um, by the way, one, one other thought on warranties was there a time when we didn't have warranties? Does anybody remember, like, in your childhood where if you bought something and it broke, it was kind of like, well, you broke it. It's broke, right? Doesn't it feel like warranties or this kind of ultra warranty that we have on everything is a newer phenomenon? I was thinking about this week. I just remember as a kid, it's just like, I mean, if there's a major defect or something really bad happened, like, yeah, you could probably get it replaced, but it was kind of... You bought it, you broke it, and it's it's done. You got to go buy a new one. Anybody else? Your laptop broke, Johnny? Yeah. Oh, man. Man. Um, let's start in the Old Testament. If you got a Bible, you don't got to go there, but I want to start in the book of Exodus, 
Um, in the book of Exodus, in, in Exodus 10, the, the famous scene between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses says those famous words. What are his famous words? Let, let my people go. This, fam- this famous dialogue between Mo- Moses and Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's response to that is generally what? No, right? He says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. So then there's the ten plagues, right? We have these ten plagues. You have the, the first plague is the, the Nile River. It turns to blood, right? That leads to the frogs. The second plague is the plague of the frogs. Then you have the gnats and then the flies, the livestock death. You have the boils, the hail, the locust, the darkness, the first. And, and then you get to this last one which was the tenth and final plague, which was the death of the firstborn. And this death of the firstborn, this kind of narrative happens in Exodus chapter 12. But one of the things that happens is God gives instructions to Moses and he says, I want you to do this. He says, I want you to take a lamb and you're going to slaughter this lamb. You're going to kill this lamb. And you're going to take the lamb and you're going to put it over the what? The doorposts, right? You're going to put the, the, the blood over the doorposts. Then you're going to take the meat of the lamb. You're going to eat that lamb. You're also going to take bread, right? You're going to make unleavened bread. You're going to make bread without leaven because tomorrow you're going to be liberated from Egypt, right? Tonight, the the angel of death is going to pass through. The, The death of the firstborn will happen except for those homes who have the lamb's blood, the pass, this, this Passover lamb, right? This lamb, because the angel's going to pass over the home. Unless you have that blood on the doorposts, um, you, if you do, you'll, you'll be protected. So you have this, you have this kind of, this kind of narrative where you have the blood of the lambs, you have the, the unleavened bread, you have these things all happening. And this is the Old Testament reference that Paul's going to pull from when he's speaking about Jesus, right? He's going he's gonna to pull from this, this narrative of the Exodus, this Passover lamb, this unleavened bread. So I told you in the email we're going to talk about this morning something kind of weird. Is it okay for a son, let me see if there's any kids out here, to have sex with his mother, stepmother. That's weird, right, Johnny? Yeah. First Corinthians chapter 5, because this is what's happening. Um, if you've got a Bible, First Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's got to deal with this in his church. So 1 Corinthians 5.1, we're going to read, I think, like the first 13 verses. It says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. And here's where it gets really weird because Paul says a man has his father's wife, right? So the relationship here is a son and most likely they, it's probably a stepmother or, or kind of a second mom or, or some sort of relationship. But there's, or maybe the father's passed away and then the, you know, only the stepmoms relate or left over. But there's some really kind of strange sexual relationship that's happening here, right? And Paul's saying this is happening in the church. And then he says this, and you're proud, right? Shouldn't you have 
rather gone into mourning and having and have put out of fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. Anyone who is present with you in this way, or sorry, as one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the sinful nature, so that the spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. And then he says this in verse 6, he says, your boasting is no good. We talked about this two weeks ago, how, how arrogant and proud the Corinthian church had become. He says, your boasting is no good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. And then here's the Old Testament reference, right? Here's where he's going all the way back into, into Exodus. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the bread of leavened, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at... <clears throat> Not at all meaning people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. But I'm now writing you that you must not associate with any who claim to be fellow believers, but are sexually immoral, greedy, idolaters, or slanderers, drunkards, or swindlers. With such people, don't even eat. What business of mine is it to judge those outside the church, but are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. It's a real cheer, cheery passage this morning that we're going to get to, to go through, huh? Um, so a couple things are happening in this, in this passage. And the first thing, you know, obviously we have this scandal that's happening. Paul, when he's talking about this scandal, he says that this scandal is even kind of beyond the borders of, of the pagans, right? That, that this sexual sin is kind of even beyond what the pagans would seem um, fitting and appropriate. And we know this, that Christianity, for the most part, has a little bit more, should have tighter sexual ethics, right? The morality, the guidelines, the standards of sex and sexual relationships in Christianity is a lot narrower, say, than the world, right? But this one goes even beyond that. And we can still think of examples like that in our culture today, right? What would be an example of something that both Christianity and the world says, no, that's, like, sexually, that's out of bounds. Anybody think? There's a few. Incest is still off the table, right? Uh, yeah, incest is still off the table. What else? I know it's kind of weird to think about <laughs> this avenue. I'm sorry. Maybe we should just, we can get, rape would be off the table, right? We all going to go there, is off the table, right? Like there's things, um, there, are certain, there are still things where, where even our culture says, no, that's too far. One of the things that we had, um, we had during the Me Too movement that happened just a few years ago, right? 
during the Me Too movement, we had women come forth who had been, these women had been exploited, they'd been sexualized, they'd been assaulted, they'd been taken advantage of. And it was an interesting moment in where our culture says, that's too far, right? And as a culture, we all kind of agreed that the way that women were being treated was too far. And, and we, needed to, we needed to come back into some stricter guidelines and some boundaries with how, with how women and men interact in a workplace relationship, right? This is one of the big, um, I think, one of the big unveilings of the Me Too movement, right? Now, there's all sorts of other things that happen with it. But it was a, it was a, a cultural moment where we say, we've moved beyond what's appropriate here. Right? Um, what Paul is talking about here with this sin, and what's interesting about this sin, and I, I want to say this, is we see, that, we see the actual sin itself, right? This kind of stepmom, son, sexual scandal. But I want to say, I'm going to take you back to math class. I want to say that what Paul is more concerned with here, I would say is the, the response to the sin over and above the sin itself. And I think that this is a massive theme of the New Testament, right? Now, church, this is a righteous, holy, biblical, upstanding church. I know that about you guys. Has anybody sinned this week? Just wink if you do. Oh, a couple of people are bold enough to raise their hand. I mean, that's, that's boldness. I mean, anybody this month, I mean, some, some, I know some in our church who have gone a whole month without sinning. Where are you at? Just, I'm just being, sarcastic. <laughs> just being sarcastic, right? Like, we blow it, like, all the time. One of the maxims that I've always li- lived by is a phrase by a guy named Brandon Manning, and he says, God expects more failure from you than you expect from yourself. Can I say that one more time? God expects more failure from you than you expect from yourself, right? So sometimes we kind of have this heightened view of ourselves where we think that we're good or, you know, how, how wonderful we are. And, and even though we sin, it's just really little baby sins. They're just kind of little small things, and, right? But when we think about, about the magnitude, say, of our cumulative sin, right, if you were to somehow be able to look at that and know that that's what God expected out of you the whole time, right? God knew that. He wasn't like, it's not like you're going to sin tomorrow and God's like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't know he was going to do that, right? He knows it. He expects more failure out of us than we expect out of ourselves because we think like, oh, no, I'm good. I'm better. But God knows the, the, the true reality about us. And so we understand that sin is so huge. And the, 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 the important thing for us to think about is then, okay, well, how do I respond to that? How do I respond to that sin, right? Because here's the deal. All of your sin, past, present, future, forever, have been dealt with on the cross, right? On the cross, Jesus said, once and for all, you're forgiven. All your sin, right? There's no sin that's going to catch Jesus off guard. So then, as Jesus dies on the cross and as he forgives our sins, he says, okay, well, what's your response to that? What do you want to do about that? How do you want to live in light of being completely forgiven? I would say that the sin that is 
destructive. And what we see here in Corinthians, the sin that ends up destroying us is unrepented sin. Right? It's sin that we don't, that we don't confess freely to God. Think about the way that you and I, we can stuff our sin down and just kind of suppress it. We can ignore it. We can gloss over it. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like really like a really bad, bad sin. It was just kind of, right? We justify our sin. We rationalize our sin. We blame others for our sin. You know, if that person wasn't, if I didn't have to work with that person all the time, I wouldn't be so angry, right? All the ways that we sidestep sin, right? And when we do that, again, our response to sin sometimes ends up being more insidious than the actual sin itself, right? If, if we continue to do this, and we see this in Corinthians, where the Corinthians are like, ah, it's not a big deal, we're good, you know, it's if son wants to do this with his mom, it's... If we continue to respond or react to sin in this way, you know, the Apostle John in his letter, right, in 1 John, he says it like this. He says that if you and I boast that we have no sin, where does that boasting come from? It comes from ignoring sin, glossing over it, justifying our sin, rationalizing it, blaming it on other people. If we boast that we have no sin, right, we're fooling ourselves, And we're strangers to the truth. But if we freely admit our sins, right? If we confess our sins, when God's light uncovers them, he will be faithful to forgive us every time. A massive theme of the New Testament, I would say, is, and again, I don't want to just say like, hey, sin is is zilch, it's nothing. But I do think that over and above all sin is the cross, And now we get to choose how we respond to that, right? What is our response in knowing that God has forgiven all of the failures that we'll make, past, present, and future, right? So the other thing that's happening in this scandal, right, is is I want to take you into a little different focus because there's a second second layer because... We focus on this, you know, again, we focus on this son, stepmother, shocking sexual, this Jerry Springer episode, right? Isn't this something you'd see like on those weird daytime TV shows? Um, But one of the things that Paul's really intentional about dealing with here is the church's response to this guy, right? The church's response. In today's vernacular, it's it's, um, in something called, in family therapy, it's called the identified patient. Molly, is that something that you deal with or something that you've, yeah? You want to go ahead and take this next point and I'll take a little break or you'll, I mean, you look happy, but I would love to defer to you. Okay. If you have anything, what's that? (laughs) If you have, I'll give like a minute afterwards. And if you have anything, you want to chime in on it. Because I'm a, such an armchair quarterback on this, but this is what I understand of it. Identified patient has a couple things that happen here. And the identified patient, you kind of have your black sheep, right? You have your black sheep. Um, you have that family member who's been scapegoated. You have that, fa- that person in your family who, when you think about them, 
you roll your eyes, right? Now, I can guarantee you all thought of someone already because you're all smiling thinking about that person, right? We all have that person in our family. We think about them. It's just like we either just, if they're going to be at that function, I don't think I'm going to make it. Or we just kind of roll our eyes and we're like, oh, boy, here we go, right? But we all have that family member, and it could be you, too. Maybe you're out there sitting and everybody's thinking, like, you're actually the family member, right? But we have that, that person who in our family is the black sheep, is the scapegoat, right? Now, this person's kind of emotional, relational issues, you know, a lot of times we make them the patient, again, the identified patient, but their issues are part of a larger family system, right? They're part of an unhealthy family dynamic. Their issues or their pathologies are arising from a dysfunction that's happening within the whole family. You with me on that? Right? Now, one of the things that this person can do too is this person can be like a whistleblower, right? So you have the black sheep. I'm going to put it, I'll just put two. Um, you kind of have the, the dysfunction family. And then, again, this black sheep can off, often serve as kind of a whistleblower on the dysfunctional family, right? Um, it kind of it can, can signify what's, what's going on in the family. Is that good? Would you add anything to that? Exactly. So do you see, do we see how this is actually happening in the Corinthian church, right? Who's got the issue? Huh? The church family, right? We identify this kind of son, stepmom, and we kind of like, whoa, what are they? That's weird stuff. Paul spends a lot of time down here talking into this dysfunctional family of Christ, this body of Christ. And, and, you know, you, Paul would say this, you think you're such a great, relevant, tolerant church, and you allow this? This, this kind of sexual relationship that's even beyond the borders of what our pagan brothers and sisters would say is normal, right? Um, the church which allows us, again, the main issue that's happening here within this scandal is, is about the church. I mean, the son, I mean, the son and the stepmom are that identified patient. The bigger deal that Paul is talking about here is the church itself, right? That's allowing this. That's perpetuating this. That is happy about it. That's boasting about it, right? Think about how sick that is for a little bit, that the church is doing this, right? That's why Paul's so strong in his words. Now, the second thing I want to talk about here I want to talk about the lamb. I want to come back to this kind of idea of protection of warranties, of guarantees. I want to talk about the lamb, the lamb as protection. So I would say that the first thing that this kind of lamb, this 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 Passover lamb protects us from, and Paul talks about it here, is our flesh. One of, the, one of the problems when reading this passage is we hear ta- Paul talking about the flesh and the spirit, and we kind of slip back into some Greek dualism, right? Where the, the body and the flesh is the bad thing, 
But luckily for us, Jesus is going to save our soul and we're going to escape up somewhere to heaven. When Paul talks about the flesh, right, um, one of the commentaries I read, and I want to read this to you guys, it says it like this, because I think this is a really good way to understand the flesh, right? The flesh is a word that gets used a lot in the New Testament. And again, a lot of times we just think it's, it's our physical body, right? The flesh, the physical body, right? This, this commentary, it's called the Jewish New Testament commentary, says this. It says that the flesh is the entire physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual nature that a person has acquired in his years of attachment to the things of this world apart from Jesus. Can I read that one more time? The flesh is the entire, notice how wide scaping this is. It's physical, it's emotional, it's mental, it's spiritual. It's the entire physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual nature that a person has acquired in his years of attachment to the things of this world apart from Jesus, right? It literally is, when you talk about the flesh, the flesh, as Paul's talking about here, is all the ways we wander from Jesus, right? It's not just Paul saying, hey, um, you know, hand him over to Satan and his flesh is going to burn, but luckily his spirit's going to escape up into heaven. No, no, no. Paul's talking about all the ways that this man has wandered from Jesus. And he wants to see all of that destroyed in this man, right? My brothers, like, I want to see that destroyed in you. All the ways, the physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, all the ways that you are attached to the things of this world apart from Jesus. Like, that's our hope, right? That's the hope of Christ living in us, that our flesh would be destroyed and that we would be able to give ourselves wholly to Jesus. That's the, that's the point of all of it, right? So the lamb, the lamb again comes in and it gives us this protection. It shows us the way, it shows us the ways that we can, maybe I'll do it this, just get back to the name of Jesus. Now, the second thing that I want to kind of talk about here too is I want to talk about the church. Right. Um, go back with me if you've got your Bibles still open. Go back with me to like verses 9 through 13. I want to read these one more time. So 9 through 13 says it like this, right? Paul says in his letter, he says, I wrote in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people, not meaning all the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, in that case, you'd have to leave this world. Now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with any who claim to be fellow believers, but are sexually immoral or greedy or idolaters or slanders or drunkards or swindlers with such people don't even eat. What business is, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel that wicked person from among you. Now, these passages, these words feel a bit tough, right? Paul's saying, like, get rid of this person. Don't let, him, don't let him in the church. Don't even eat with them. And part of the reason that this feels tough is because in our culture, we have two things working against, uh, we have two major dynamics at work. 
Can you guys even see that? Just seeing it. I mean, my riding I know is not the greatest, but I'm riding kind of small too. You guys all right? Moral. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me talk about these for a second. We have these two dynamics working because when we read verses nine through thirteen, and Paul's like saying, "Get rid of this person. Don't eat with this person," and we're thinking to ourselves, "Like, no, man, that's what the church. We're like here for, you know, we gotta forgive people and restore people and do all that work." We have these two things that are going on in our in our modern culture that that really kind of make it hard for us to digest these words from Paul, right? Moral individualism, right, is a dynamic that happens in our culture where it says. Listen, I know it's wrong, but who am I to judge, right? Or you hear this in, in, the, in phrases like, hey, I mean, as long as it's not hurting anyone, who am I to say anything, right? Has anybody heard those phrases, right? We hear this all the time. This is moral individualism, right? Individuals decide the morality for themselves. You just get to make those choices on your own. The, the second phrase here is called expressive individualism, Right? Expressive individualism says, I define in myself what is right or wrong. The community can't tell me what to do, right? I, am, I, am, I know what's right. And these two dynamics, right, are happening so strongly in our culture, this moral and this expressive individualism, right? So we see this happening in our culture. The other thing that I would say, too, is that, what's up, Johnny, what you need? The bathroom should be, yeah, it should be in there. We have these two things happening. I would say the other, the other part that makes us struggle to engage verses 9 through 13 is that, I'm going to try and say this softly, but it's, it's not going to be that soft. We just don't take the church seriously enough anymore. Right? We don't. Church, uh, as we've come to accept it, as it's come to be known in our culture, is what I call a societal add-on. It's not much different from a job. Right? If you don't like your job, what do you do? You quit. It's, uh, it's, it's a club. It's a calendar item. It doesn't have that authority on our lives, maybe the way that the New Testament church did. Right? How would you feel if we sat around here on a Sunday morning... And we just talk like, uh, just talked about your finances, right? Like, I, I see that car that you're driving, and that's too much for you. To, that's, that car is too expensive for you to be driving. You're not allowed to drive that car, right? These two things would come into play and say, who are you to tell me what kind of car I can't drive, right? Or we turn to one another, and your pastor says, um, hey, that career choice that you made, you decided it solely on how much money you're going to make, and underneath that decision is greed. I think you should change your job, right? Uh, I've noticed a lot of the swear words that you use. I've been observing your drinking habits. We're going to talk about that this morning, right? See, I, again, the church, I don't know if it has that authority any longer, and maybe this is a, a topic for another sermon, right? But we do have these two dynamics at play. We have this moral and expressive individualism. I would say we kind of have this weakened nature of the church, right? And, and so when we get to Paul's words, they're, they're difficult for us to hear that a church could be the one to say to somebody, you're out. 
We're not even going to eat with you anymore. We're done with you, right? That's difficult for us still to hear. Let me get all the way back to our warranties, and we'll close with this. Because Paul gives us his strong words. He says, put him out of fellowship, right? Hand him over to Satan. Don't even eat with these, these, these sorts of people, right? One of the things that I was really learning about the, the church, especially in the first century, which again is completely different from our church now, is the church in the first century would have been a safety net, right? It would have been a protection. It would have been a guarantee for its members. So think about the church in the first century, right? The church in the first century would have provided financial stability for you. One of the beautiful pieces of the book of Acts is they all come together, they share their resources so that nobody's in need, right? There wasn't a bank that you could go take a loan out. There wasn't, you know, some, like if you had a need, if you were coming on hard times and the glisten said, hey, we're, we're kind of running low, then we would come together as a church and we would say, what do you need? We're there for you. We're going to make sure that there's bread on your table. We're not going to let you go hungry, right? The church provided financial stability. The church, um, it, it was the relational hub. It was where you, you met daily and you were in relationship, deep relationship with these people. It was the spiritual and moral compass. It was mission and purpose. It was accountability it was guidance. I would say that we've seen something similar to this dynamic happen um, over this past year with pulling children out of schools, right? One of the things that we've seen with pulling children out of schools due to the pandemic, and again, that might be topic for another sermon, but when you remove a child from school and you think about how that depletes them, they, for the most part, are losing a majority of their education, right? even though they are learning, and my wife's a teacher, and teachers are working really hard, it's just not the same. We know that, right? Teachers would agree with that. They lose the socialization. Um, they don't have that secondary authority in their lives. I was reading the paper last week, and they said that 80% of children in the Los Angeles Unified School District are on free or reduced lunches, right? So now kids are losing that nourishment element, um, Molly, we've talked about this where um, in your line of work, you've just seen all of your reported cases of abuse just go all the way down because that's not being reported by teachers, right? So when you pull a child out of a school, again, we need to think about how that really depletes them and how they, can, how they, they struggle through that, right? It removes that safety net. Um, when we pull somebody out of the church, it's the same thing. It's the same dynamic, right? Last thing. When I think about this Passover lamb, because this is the image that, that, that Paul uses to describe Jesus, this Passover lamb, my, my initial thought always just goes over here to sin forgiveness, right? The Passover lamb was the one that forgave sins, right? If you were in the first century... I mean, not in the first century. If you were alive during the time of Moses and this angel of death is coming and you're going to have this lamb that's going to be the Passover lamb, you're not thinking about sin forgiveness. You're thinking about protection, right? When, when Paul says to remove this man out of the church, this is largely a protective issue, not only for the man, but for the church as well, right? Not only is he trying to protect this man from his flesh, this flesh that could be the leaven in the church that could just grow throughout the whole church. But he's also trying 
to protect the church as well, right? I hope that the, the you know this kind of warranty isn't too crude of an analogy, but the Passover lamb, it was it was the warranty. It was like the Costco purchase protection. It said that if you stay under this, needed a little time out there for a second right if you stayed under that it was almost like Paul saying like I need to, I need that the church the church needs to be this protective net and it needs to be protected both from the outside and the inside right that's the image of Christ as the Passover lamb and it going all the way back it was I don't think I have this written up here I could write it here It was the boasting and the pride. It was the arrogance. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The root of all sin, this boasting, this pride, this arrogance. This was what was preventing the church from being protected. Right. So, this is the most loving thing that the church could have done, is to remove this man. Even though we encounter these words as harsh, and we think like, oh no, that's not what we should do. Or, um, But... One last thing where, and I won't go to this, in 2 Corinthians 5, if you, if you wanted to read this later, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is actually writing another letter back to the Corinthian church, right? And he talks about this person who's been restored back into fellowship, right? 99% of all commentators agree that it's this son, it's this, this son's stepmom, um, that have been restored back into fellowship. They have been put back, un, so to speak, under the doorposts of the church, right? Under the Passover lamb. So, I think that's about all I got for this morning. Yeah? What's that? Christ is our protection. When we stay under Christ, right? When we stay under Him, it's all—it's the protection that we need from anything. Sometimes it's tough, though, inside being protected inside too. It's not that. My dad I was talking to my dad last night, and he said, "You think about that Passover night, you know, back in Egypt with the Israelites." And he said, "There's probably some families on that night, and they're squabbling, and they're fighting, and they're not getting along, and there's arguments about the meal, and..." who's doing what, and there's probably some tension. But if they had the blood posts on the doors, they were protected, right? And so, again, there's fights and there's squabbles and there's difficulties within the church, but Christ is our Passover lamb. Let me do this. I was going to do some small some questions, but I think, I think we're, we're out of time. I think we're good. Um, if you wanted to think about this with some folks uh, throughout the week, when has rebuke worked in your life? When has somebody pulled you aside and just said, hey, you're wrong and you're out of line and it's worked? Because, again, our initial response is to, to defend against that. Um, when has rebuke worked in your life? Um, and then when we think about this protection, where do you feel that you need more protection from your flesh, all the ways that you wander from Jesus, 
Um, or do you feel that you need kind of more protection within the church? So those are just some questions to think about maybe over the week. Let me say a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Christ, you are our Passover lamb. You are the one who comes and protects us. We humble ourselves underneath that. I mean, I know that a lot of us think that we can make it, that we're self-made, that we can do things, that we're smart, we're articulate. We've made it in life. And yet you remind us that you are the one who brings the protection. Lord, if, if somebody out there today too is just kind of, you know, going all the way back to the beginning, if they're struggling with sin, I'm praying that today that they would respond appropriately in the name of Jesus to the forgiveness that's offered, to the mercy, to the grace. Give them courage not to give up, to keep going. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, that'll do it. Thank you, guys.